0: The detective that took me to juvenile at 11 years old said, Jody, straighten up. He is the same detective that came to Danny Lee's house and got me when I was a runaway. And when he put me in his car and I had just gotten high two hours ago on meth, he said, Jody, I'm telling you, you need to straighten up. He was the same person, the same detective that walked into my house after the raid, uh, after the SWAT team raided our house, and he is the detective that walked in, took my nine month old little girl out of my arms and said, Jody, you should have straightened up, turned around and walked out with my nine month old baby girl.
1: You're listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast, providing strength for today and hope for tomorrow for caregivers and their families. Connect with Colleen and other caregivers on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, where you can find a community of people who get it and explore all our resources. Now, here's Colleen.
2: Welcome you again to Reframing Ministries podcast. Whether you're watching this on video or listening to it through, uh, however you hear your podcast, I want to give you a little heads up because our discussion today with my wonderful guest has some adult themes in it. So if little kids are around, it may be a good time to listen to this a listen to this a little bit later. And I also want to say if you are hearing or watching. This story is for every single person alive today because it's one of redemption. It's one of incredible darkness, incredible, incredible pain and suffering and also redemption and how God finds us in the middle of what we think is absolutely impossible. So that said, my guest, Jody Ballinger, thank you so much for being with me today.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me.
2: I had the delight of reading your book, Beautifully Unbroken, A Prostitute's Daughter. Why don't we start out with you giving us the background of where you came from, your childhood, and things that went on then?
0: Okay. Well, um, at, as I wrote the story, because I did put um, The Prostitute's Daughter, uh, I started my book out with my mom's story, and my mom has a had a really sad story. Um, at the, her very first memory that she ever had was of her stepdad abusing her, sexually abusing her. Um, that lasted until she was out of the house, which she, um, She got married very early to get out of the house. Um, When she got married, uh, she had uh, my sister, my older sister, which is about 10 years older than me. And then um, my brother came about a year after that and um, bad marriage. um, He didn't uh, provide for the family. He, He was a working man, but he kept all the money to himself uh, was a womanizer. Um, and so basically they were left to fend for themselves. So Mm -hmm. she ended up giving the kids to the grandparents and, um, she went out on the streets. Well, it wasn't very long at all before, you know, some, she got in the presence of wrong people and they kind of escorted her into, you can talk somebody in, to doing things that you would not normally think that you would do. Mm-hmm. And just um, all the circumstances that she had already been through, that was like an easy step for her. And um, so she started prostituting. Um, she was a prostitute for a couple of years. And um, one of her Johns one night um, didn't let her go. He actually mm-hmm. kept her uh, in a room, locked her up in a room, and um, kept her there um, she was there um, and one day thank goodness she was there for several weeks and mm. one day he forgot to lock to lock the door she was able to escape um, so she's running down the street completely naked screaming for help um, uh, she was um, they got her help um, and she said that she doesn't know um, whatever came of charges about the man. She just didn't want any part of it. So I don't even know that that man even ended up going to prison or anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then, about a month after that, her and my dad met. Now, let me give you some bre- background with my dad. My dad came from a family of thieves. So um, this is. Um, at a very early age, him and his sisters uh, were taught how to, when you're over at your friend's house, you get into the mother's purse, you take her money. Um, when you're at the park, you two distract uh, the parents. And um, my dad was to go into their car and um, get the get in their billfolds and take their money. Um, so... Th- we're talking uh, 45, 1945, <laughs> uh, and my dad was born in 1935. So here's 19, uh, before even 1945. So all these um, people are complaining to the police. Uh, you know, somebody's stealing our money when we're at the park. So they, pe- they set up a, a sting operation, and here they see my dad, a little kid, about eight, nine years old, coming to the uh, park with his three young sisters behind him. And they literally watched the whole thing happen. So then they get all the kids, my dad and his three sisters in the car. And they said, okay, we're going to, we need to take you back home. Well, their home was a tent that they were living in. So they end up taking them to this tent where their mom and dad was. And, um, And so for them to escape going to the children's home, um, the mom and dad got, uh, got them left town and literally they hopped from city to city. And, um, so he said that he had all kinds of odd jobs, but anyway, they were raised to be thieves. Um, and, uh, and then eventually, my dad, um, my my grandma, because it kept happening, um, my grandma went to women's prison. My uh, grandpa went to uh, men's prison. My brother, my dad, was sent to boys' school. And then the three young girls were put in the children's home um, because it kept happening. No matter where they're at, okay. All of a sudden, all these burglaries are happening. Um, so that's where he came from. So my dad had already at this time uh, d- had been in prison three times. So he had just gotten out of prison. My mom just escaped from what she escaped from. And then they got together. Um, they got married. Um, they had me and my sister and then adopted my little sister and then one day, um, I was nine years old. I was coming nine years old in the third grade, came home from school, and there's a U-Haul uh, sitting in our driveway, and I'm thinking, what's going on? I walk in the house. There's nothing left in, left in the house, and my mom told me very nonchalant, nonchalantly, we're moving. And so that next day, me and my mom and my two sisters are now at her house in the middle of Cleveland, Ohio, in the ghetto of Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio. And her sister and husband are drug dealers and not small time drug dealers, big time drug dealers uh, to where there was 13 gallon trash bags completely filled to the top. Couldn't even close them, there was so much in them. Uh, When you would open up the refrigerator door, uh, there would be a little bit of food in there, but you would see mostly mason jars filled with every kind of pill you can imagine. And so within a week of me being there, I was smoking pot and doing and popping pills At the age of nine, in the third grade, um, because of change of circumstances, it was at that time, um, my life just completely, uh, I mean, I really had no guidance after that. um, And I was... Growing up, I was that person that I really needed to be loved and I really Mm. needed the guidelines. So I was the little girl out looking for love and I went to all the wrong places. And so that's 11 years old. I um, went to juvenile detention for the very first time. The first time there was many, many times after that. Um, And I was in and out of the juvenile in and out of children's home just because I was able to do anything I wanted whenever I wanted. Um, Well,
2: let me ask ask you this question, because what you're talking about is a mom who's completely absent, a dad who is not present at all. So there's no attachment. There's you are you are. As Diane Langberg says, you are marinated in trauma and in abuse yeah. because sexual abuse was also a part of your history as a oh, child. yes, so that's there's right. sexual abuse, right. emotional abuse, yes. physical abuse. There's always psychological abuse. that's that's in every kind of abuse. So you have really no moorings or anything no. to ground you. Of course, you're going to be looking for love wherever you yeah. can find it. And pills and pot. And drugs filled that vacancy. Yes. Like you you couldn't say goodbye to your friends. That's you know, right. That, that was just, and I noticed throughout the story, one of the themes was moving and moving and moving and moving, which again is part of that lifestyle that now we're yes. talking about it more than we ever were. Sex trafficking so was right. not talked about then, but now we need to have this conversation. You also noted a statistic that one in three girls are sexually abused, and one in six boys. And I think that's probably only the reported number. I think there's so many more. And that's why we address these situations, because they're happening all over the world. As you were that nine-year-old girl, what went through your mind? Popping pills, smoking, you had no guidance whatsoever. How did you... What what was the day like for you?
0: It, I tell you, okay, so not only um was I taken out of a pretty structured home, but I was moved into this chaos. Now I have drugs, now I have all all this going on. And then I go to school and I'm picked on because I'm one of the only white people there. And so I was, they spit in my face because you know, you're white. And so I, I had nowhere to turn. I just really didn't. And so what do you do when that happens? You turn inward. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's all me. It's, Um, which is even more of, you know, taking bricks and building a wall, um, because those people hurt, not just, you know what I'm saying? It's just like every situation. Um, and from the age of nine, like when you're out in the world doing drugs and things like that, there is. You're working for every single thing you have. There is no one there to give you good advice. No one. (laughs) I don't remember ever getting good advice from it. You know, you're just in a really bad situation. And if you're not, if you don't have someone around you somewhere, um, giving you good advice, praying for you, you stay in those situations. Um, So from nine years old, like I said, 11 years old, I was in and out of juvie um, children's home by 13. I'm in the scared straight program. Now this would have been, uh, 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 l- let me see, probably 1983, 84 time, I'm going through the Scared Straight program. That's where you go go into prison and the inmates are screaming at you to listen to your parents. And I'm thinking, <laughs> where, I live, I and exactly. where I live- What parents do I listen to? Exactly. And so- um, In fact, I think
2: at that time, your mother was actually taking care of your grandparents and that's you right. and your sister were living alone
0: alone at that's right 12 years old that's, that's right that's 11 still in school 12, yes 11 and 12 years old we were moved into a not even a full size trailer it was a half sized trailer at 11 and 12 years old, and uh, we were there, and she would come by um, every now and again to uh, make sure that we had food or anything that we needed. But we were told, your aunt lives a couple blocks away. If you need anything, go there, which would have been her aunt, so that would have been my great aunt. But here we are 11 and 12 years old living on our own. But then even again, uh, a few months later, when um, she did rent a regular house and we moved into it, even after my grandparents died and she moved back in the home with us, she really wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, too, I don't know that she was ever um, you know told that she was bipolar but now that i know about bipolar it so describes my mom she was at one end to the other all the time um so even though she was present she wasn't really present mm-hmm. um but there was many many times we were left alone
2: well yeah, i want to so. call attention to something that you write at the beginning of your book that i think is very profound and it really calls us all to um greater compassion because as we look on the outside, you mentioned one of your friends being goth before goth was even a thing. Yes. And yes. a lot of times what happens is we look at the outside and think, well, there's nothing good that can come from that person, which is so wrong and so not Jesus. And the story that that Jesus tells us, which we have hope because of him. But you said yes. in this book, um it's easy to hide what goes on inside an insulated frame of a house, stark and still on a patch of land with trees shading its mysterious secrets. From the outside, it can have a normal cheery coat of paint contradicting the hell storm that is happening inside. I just want us all to pause and evaluate when you see someone who is goth, who is strung out on drugs, who's in juvenile, if judgment is the first thing that comes to mind, that's a problem. Yes. You had no direction. You had no one to go to. You had no money. You had to fend for yourself and yes. you were doing the best that you can. Not to mention the neural development that happens when you are so abused at such an early age, even having a functional Cognitive ability is frozen in places. And so it was just you had to feel like two mice scurrying around wherever you could find anything. And then boys entered the picture. And you oh, had yeah. been taught to be seductive and to be mm-hmm. sexual early on. So let's talk about that entering the picture along with the drugs.
0: Yes, yes. So um I um starting at a very early age, I had to have been Probably three or four years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I had older brothers, a uh, brother and sister that was 10 uh, nine and 10 years older than me. So, um, his friends would come over. Well, here I am just a three or four year old little girl. And I can remember one or two of them, like luring me into the back. And, and we lived in a very wooded area at the back where we had our fire pit and, and, uh, he would get me out there and then he would start tickling me. You know, it's a game. And that's what everybody does to a little mm-hmm. kid, tries to tickle them. Well, tickling ended up becoming something different. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, yes, that started very early. But then it just kept going from one. I felt like I had a sticker on my forehead that said "free game," like do whatever you want to f- with her, um, because it didn't matter where I went, I would go to my friend's house. Mm-hmm. Um, these were these would be people that are um, in my same grade or maybe a grade or two above me um, that's my age. So you have to be watch your children. Who, watch who you put your children around um you know l- inform your children if someone does this and this can be someone your age as well this applies to them too come and tell me. Hmm. so many people don't let their children know and then when it happens to them they feel like they did something. Hmm. oh I must have done something for that to cause which is all all victims, right? You know, well, if I didn't do this or that, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Um, Yeah, there's so much
2: self-condemnation in that. And I think the process you're talking about is grooming, uh, what they call it now. And another thing called an outcry, which is when a child will come to an adult or a parent and tell them, this is what happened. Most of the time, parents respond as your mom responded, yep. how could you say something like that? Of course, that's not happening. When statistically it shows most perpetrators are known by the family and yes. possibly are the caregiver or close to the parents in some way. So it's not some right.
0: random
2: person it's that just takes your
0: Yeah, yes, that's right. It, these are people that they know and that they're watching their mom or someone close around them talk them up. Look how wonder this f- person is that is doing the bad things. Yeah. Aren't um, you going to hu-
2: hug Uncle Johnny at Christmas? No, because. Right. And so when parents force that, it makes it yeah. so much worse, so, so scattering and confusing. Yeah. That's right. So you're 12, 13 years old, sexually Mm -hmm. involved with.
0: Oh, yes. I, I, um, by 11, um, by the, by 11 years old, I'm, I'm sexually involved now. Um, and, um, and, and that just continued. And I, uh, like I said, I just wanted to be loved. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I would go from relationship to relationship to relationship. Uh, if they said they loved me. (laughs) You know, uh, it's just very sad, uh, now that I'm grown and, and can really think about it, how, how open I was to Mm -hmm. just, just love me. I'll do whatever you need for me to do. Um, but uh, yeah, so, um, and then I'm a fighter. Oh, I, uh, I'm learning how to fight because we don't have a lot of money. So I'm not getting new school clothes. I'm I don't have anything. So going to school, um, I learned, uh, like in, in, when I was nine years old, when I went to school, if I, um, uh, didn't fight back, I would, I mean, it would have been all over. So I learned right then that I was going to be the bully, <laughs> you know, and well, that's how bullies I bully others.
2: Yeah, I mean, we learn to bully by being bullied. So most bullies have learned that behavior because that's what happened to them.
0: That's right. And I, in my head was like, you either do this or they're going to run you over. Um, So I ended up being the bully. uh, My whole school life, I was the bully because I wanted them to know they weren't going to say anything to me and they learned really quick. Um, But that was my own uh, defense mechanism of defending myself from other people and that wall that I was building. Um, But yeah, so I was by sixth grade, I, um, I skipped school in the sixth grade for two months Um, and I ended up going to juvenile and, and that was right before graduation, sixth grade graduation. My teacher came in to juvenile and he said, Jody, he says, I got it approved for you to walk with your sixth grade uh, class to graduation. He said, but because you're in juvenile, you have to wear handcuffs. But what we'll do is we'll put a sweater over them so people can't see you or see them. And I was like, you know why? I'm not going to do that. But, you know, my sixth grade teacher was the best teacher I ever had because he realized where I was. He realized what I was doing and he so wanted to help me um so then i i just ended up being the partying girl um doing whatever i wanted it never led me to any place good um by i was uh in children's home met my first love that i i really considered my first true love and he came from a family that was he was able to do whatever he wanted whenever he could too so um so I moved right in with him. Now here I am. I'm in the. Um, let me see. I'm in eighth grade. I'm living with my boy, my boyfriend, and um, and then my dad. Oh, and my mom is out of town with her uh, boyfriend, so she now lives in Kentucky, and she left me and my sister home alone, <laughs> and um, so then I moved in with my boyfriend. My dad finds out and makes me move move in with him that only lasted about six weeks I ran away moved back in with Danny so now I'm on the run Um, so me and Danny um, go to different places to try to avoid the cops but while I was on the run Danny introduced me to meth Hmm. and so now I'm on meth I go the very day I did meth Um, about two hours afterwards, the police catches me at his house. I am now in juvenile detention. Danny's upset and he, him, his mom, and two of our friends get, get in his truck. They're drinking, going around the reservoir. He gets into a collision and is almost instantly killed. They said that he couldn't have, it was within a minute and he had probably passed, um, So the next day I was told um, that what happened. So I'm even in more shock. I mean, my whole childhood was just shock after shock after shock.
1: Visit us at reframingministries.com for all of Colleen's interviews, articles, recommended resources, and more. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe and receive our free five-day video devotional series where Colleen provides pointers for navigating daily life and struggles.
2: So I have to ask you, did you ever cry?
0: You know what? Hardly ever. Right. I didn't think so. Isn't that something? I learned at nine years old um, to cover my feelings. You know what I would do? And I just thought about this yesterday, how uh, resilient children are. You know what I would do? I would walk around like this. Everywhere I went, I had a smile on my face and everyone would comment, "Jody, you just smile all the time. And that was my mask. Everything's fine. Everything's fine.
2: As (laughs) you said, no one would ever guess the hell that you were living in. And now- The boy that you liked, loved was dead. Yes, You were living at his parents' house. That's right. And you were taken. When was the time when you hit the hit rock bottom? Was that when you took the entire bottle of Tylenol? Okay. Yes. Yeah. You wanted to kill you. You were like, I'm done. I, I, I'm done. I'm surprised you lived as long as you did without trying that. Self-harming is now something that happens so often. Were you self-harming at the time or did you just I go? I was st-
0: not. Okay. Hmm. So this was, uh, okay. So that that time right there was when I was living with my dad for that six weeks. Hmm. And I, when I moved in with my dad, first off, I had the worst stepmom ever. She hated us. Um, so that's why my, nev- my dad never came around us because she, if, if he came around us, if we came around him, oh, he was in trouble. So he stayed away from us pretty, pretty much. We saw him twice a year and that was it. And um, so here now I am moved in with him and I'm really trying to make it work. I am like, I I'm going to make this work, but she made it impossible. So the very night that I went, I'm done. I just don't even want to be in this world anymore. So all I had was that, you know, the little chapstick, chapstick size with Tylenol in it. That's all I had in my room. And I went, okay. And here I am a young teenager. So I'm Mm. like, I'm going to take, if I take that whole bottle, surely that will kill me. And so here I took the whole bottle of Tylenol, expecting that I was, that I'm not going to wake up. And that very night, Danny knocked on my window in the middle of the night. Now, mind you, our houses now are an hour away from each other. So he was coming for, uh, to get me to run away with him. Mm. So I had just taken those. I'm asleep and I wake up to the sound of Danny knocking on my window saying, come on, Jody. let." I came to pick you up. My dad, which is right above me, hears him. And um, I run upstairs. And um, so my dad, you know, calls the cops and everything. But that very night is um, Danny was there knocking on the window saying, come on. And I had just tried to kill myself. Absolutely amazing. So that's when um I ended up running away to Danny and then uh, within a, two weeks of that, um Danny had passed away. Yeah well,
2: let's skip full. I mean, you're at the end, and now he's gone and you meet someone named Billy and yes, yes and <laughs> um you end up getting pregnant.
0: yeah,
2: and y'all get married. you were what seventeen.
0: I was 17 years old. My dad signed the marriage license. He had to sign. Yes. And so
2: how do you have a relationship when all you have seen is, is broken, um, addiction, prostitution, um, sex slavery, grooming, the police being called. How did you even know how to
0: relate? Okay, this is, you know how little girls, um, little girls will grow up and they're dreaming and uh, about their wedding and about how, you know, they're going to be married with children and all that. That was not me. I didn't dream. And um, I knew that I was probably going to get married. I'll probably have a couple of children. He will probably leave. And because that's how my neighborhood was, I didn't know anyone that was mm-hmm. still that had the same, you know what I'm saying that didn't was not divorced, mm-hmm. um, it was not from a divorced home. And so I just assumed that's, that's my lot in life. And that's just how it's going to go. We'll get married, it'll last a couple years. And then, you know, we'll get a divorce. So here at the age of 17, that's still my mindset okay, well, this is a good, good thing. And Billy is like, uh, one of um, the only guy that I had ever met that was not in my surroundings, Billy. Mm -hmm. So in reform school, Billy and I met. And so he actually came um, from another county of mine. He actually came from a pretty good home. And everyone I was used to um, was in my neighborhood. We all lived the same. We were all in it together. And that's why we came, be- we became our own family because sure. we were in the same situation. Well, that's and a so lot of here. the reason why
2: games, why gangs come together that's is right. because they have no one to attach to. So they attach that's to each other. And that attachment bond is sometimes even stronger.
0: That's right. It is because now they've chosen to go into it. And they're, they're going into that for safety, but they're also going in it for love. I'm going to belong here. Um, and that's why they're willing to shoot people and do everything else because their gang told them to is because that's all they have. I need to do, I need to do whatever they tell me. So they'll accept me. Um, what did you need to hear
2: or as, as, as parents are listening right now, if they have a child who has, who is in that situation, what advice do you have for them?
0: Um, where their child is out on drugs, doing Mm -hmm. things that yes. Okay. Um, this is, I say you need to get that now, if they're young enough, You need to get them in a placement. And I would not even do same county placement. I would go send them to a place that's out of county placement to get them drug help and to get them away from those friends. They have to get separated from those friends. Um, They're always, um, because you'll see later on in our conversation, Billy and I ended up having to do that. Um, You have to separate yourself. And, um, and first of all, do faith-based faith, mm. faith-based placement. And the, uh, the place that Billy and I met actually has, it's called on um, Josiah White's new possibilities. Mm. They actually have, um, homes now, now Billy and I were sent there, um, from the courts. So they have a court section, but they also have a private section, um, to where, they are separated from all their friends and they get counseling. They get drug counseling. They get counseling of something's going on, something at some point. went, And that's not always the parents. I mean, as parents, we always take it on ourselves, but that can be lots of things happen in schools. Lots of things happen when those kids are spending the night with this person or that person. So um, but they need to go someplace where they can get counseling and drug counseling for sure. And family Um,
2: systems counseling,
0: even if they,
2: even if the parents are great parents, but their kid has gotten lost along the way, it's a family system. And right in reuniting, if they are at a, at a location separate for a while, then yes. there's a whole process of reuniting and learning how to be a family, like the body, the physical body, each system each part has a plays an important part. So if That's one right. part is not well, the whole system is going to be somewhat compromised. In That's your right. situation, you had full compromise until you both went away and got help and got better. But then Coming back, the SWAT team invades. You lose your daughter. That's right. you're incarcerated.
0: So now let me take you through that. Okay, do you remember when I was 11 and I went to juvenile for the first time? The detective that uh, took me to juvenile at 11 years old said, "Jody, straighten up. He is the same detective that came to Danny Lee's house and got me when I was a runaway. And when he put me in his car, and I had just gotten high two hours ago on meth, he said, Jody, I'm telling you, you need to straighten up. He was the same person, the same detective that walked into my house after the raid, uh, after the SWAT team raided our house. And he is the detective that walked in, took my nine-month-old little girl out of my arms and said, Jody. You should have straightened up, turned around and walked out with my nine month old baby girl. Now, if there was anything in life that makes you turn around real quick is when someone, because when I told you about the story of I wasn't a dreamer, I wasn't dreaming of this big fancy wedding that I was going to have this big wonderful life because I knew that was not my lot in life. I knew I was going to be the, uh, I was going to live a horrible life. (laughs) I, You know what I'm saying? I just could not see out of it. But I told myself growing up, I'm going to get married, but I'll probably get divorced, but no one will ever be able to uh, take my children. Guess what? The detective just walked out of the house with her. Right then, I knew I am straightening up. I need to do whatever I need to do to get my little girl back with the exception of, I could not tell, I was trained my whole life. Well, since nine, you don't snitch on anyone that's ingrained in you. You can't yes, secrets. tell so yes, secrets. And so I wasn't willing to tell the police what the information that they wanted. And they asked me, if you tell us who did this, and it was two of our friends. Um, If you tell us who did this, we'll let you go. I chose not to do it. I chose not to tell. I could have told and saved myself from prison and I did not do that. So Billy and I, um, after the raid happened, Mindy is now in foster care, she's nine months old and him and I did everything that the courts told us to get Mindy back, we went through family, uh, family classes and all that. And uh, they were like, no, you still can't get her back. Um, So what we did, we decided we have to leave our surroundings. Everyone we know, it's not a good situation for us to be here. We're trying to get out of this. So we chose to be homeless and move an hour away. We slept in our car Um, I was able to get a job as a gas station attendant, and so we lived in our car for at least two weeks until I was able to get my first check to move into our house. Um, Billy, they had um, put Billy in drug rehab, so here I am in Indianapolis all by myself. He's in drug rehab for 35 days, and I get robbed at gunpoint twice, (sighs) He comes I know. I mean, like it, this is just absolutely crazy. So he comes home and now I have to tell him I've been robbed at gunpoint twice while you were away. And he says, if it happens one more time, you have to quit. Sure enough, it happened that very night. I come home with my manager and he says, you got robbed again. And so he made me quit. We go into the gas station the next day to pick up my check. And there was a guy going down the road and his truck started overheating. And so he pulled into the gas station, comes in. Now I've seen him in and out because he is remodeling a house down the street from the gas station and he says I need to get some water I bring him out some water he brings it back in and he says I don't know what it is but my truck's fine so he gives me back the bucket and then he overhears Billy saying come on we have to go because I need a job and he was like I'll hire you right now and so Billy was like okay (laughs) and so here this guy is talking to us and um, he says, do you go to church anywhere? And, and we were like, no. And he says, are you going any, anywhere for Easter Sunday, which would have been just a few weeks later. And, um, and we're like, no. And he says, can me and my wife come to your house tonight? Now, mind you. So here we are in Indianapolis all alone. We just got our apartment. Billy's now out of rehab. Now we're waiting for our trial, which is only uh, six weeks away. And um, so I had prayed when we moved to Indianapolis that we could find good, good. Now I didn't know to say good Christian friends because I didn't consider myself a Christian. I was backslidden. And so I just wanted good friends. And So here this, this guy gives Billy a job and says, can me and my wife come to your house tonight? They came to our house that night, him and Billy talked in the living room, him, uh, me and uh, his wife, Diana, are talking in the kitchen. And she, uh, she starts talking about the second coming of Christ. And I tell her pray with me, I want to rededicate my life. (laughs) And so he is talking to Billy. So the next day is a Wednesday night. They invited us. That was Billy's first day to work with him. And then they invited us to Wednesday night church. And um, so we go to their, go to their little church and we pull out, pull up to the church. We're a little late and no joke. The church was going boom, 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 boom on the outside. They were like, So loud. So we walk in, and guess where Jeff and Diana was? All the way at the front. We feel like there's a million needles sticking in us. Like this is. We look like we came off the streets. I mean, we didn't have anything nice to wear, and so we walk in there, and here they're telling us, "Come to the front row." Well, every time, Billy would lean over, and he says, "We're not coming back. We're not coming back." But then we would go back. So. For six weeks, we started going to this little church. We go um, six weeks later to court, to trial. They find us guilty. I was baptized in that little bitty church the night before our trial, not knowing a couple days later I was going to be found guilty. And Billy and I were both given a sentence of six years in prison. So the the women's prison in Indianapolis when I was 13 and they got in front of me and they were yelling and going, you listen to your parents, you don't want to be here. And I left there at 13 thinking, I will never be back here. Five years later, I am now going in the doors and it's closing behind me. And so we ended up, um, now Billy's mom was able to get our daughter Mindy. So Mindy was with his mom. Um, we went in when she was, well, she was taken from us at nine months old. When we got out of prison, she was three and a half years old. And, but all the way through our prison sentence, Jeff and Diana and his parents, his parents came to visit me every single week I was in prison to tell me about Jesus. Isn't and, that something? I mean,
2: Jesus just invaded your life oh. with that one gentleman at the gas station whose car somehow had to be, you know, pulled over. And that's so like Jesus. Um, I love that, that you guys got to the church and looked nothing like what you thought you needed to look like. And they said, come to the front, come to the front. I want to emphasize that because for every person watching or listening, Jesus says that to you, come as you are, come to the front my arms are open. I'm here for you. I am the answer. And I that's would assume right. that's what got you through two years of incarceration. You that's and right. Billy are still married to this day.
0: That's right. That's right. 35, we'll be cel- celebrating our 35th anniversary this July 18th. Is God, we,
2: God is so it's good. amazing. And, yes. and you had mentors that that helped develop you in ways that never ever were poured into you before. Um, As I, as I come to a close, I could talk about, I could talk with you all day about your stories. Um, Can you just talk to the person who is longing for love, who has tried everything and they just don't know what to do?
0: Yes. I can tell you that, You're not going to fill that hole with anyone but Jesus. Mm -hmm. There's not a man or woman in this world that can fill that hole. Billy can't fill that hole in me and I can't fill it in him. It's got to be filled with Jesus. And he's there for you. And he wants you to take that step today. And you put your whole heart, give him your whole heart and he'll fill it. And then um, whether you're married and you, and it's not going right, or whether you're a single person, you give everything to God, and God will take care of that. I truly believe that. And if you're in a, uh, if you're in a uh, relationship to where there is abuse, get away. God doesn't want that. God does a, does not want that. And if there's a church out there telling you stay, stay, stay. That's not, that's not God. You get you and your children away from that. And um, yes, but I can tell you, God is there and waiting for you right now. And you fill that hole with Jesus.
2: Well, you guys have a ministry now. Billy's recorded several uh, music albums, which is great. How can people get a hold of you or find you?
0: Uh, BillyBallinger.com. Okay. or com. Okay. And do you do speaking together or separately or? Usually separate. I uh-huh. usually do more of the women's conferences. Uh-huh. Um, Billy, um, speaks in churches and, um, and then he also does, uh, schools. Um, he speaks all our all sorts of programs. So
2: well, I think you've had about every experience that you could have that would be coming to the end of oneself, or at least you tried, and then your answer was Jesus. I love how you said in the book, there are moments in time you look back and say and you can see where the Lord intersected your life without you even knowing it or realizing it. Yes. And that yep. is what he's doing today in our conversation. He's offering you, the listener, or the the person watching, hope, saying, just come to me because my arms are open. I am the answer. That's right. Jody. thank you for pouring your heart into this work, for your bravery in speaking candidly and authentically about your experiences. And I just pray that any person listening will fall into the arms of Jesus right now. Because where you are now is not at all where you started out. And that's the story of redemption. That's right. Yes. Thank you so, so much. This has been a wonderful time. Thank you very much,
0: Colleen.
1: Thank you again for joining us today. We hope you'll join us again for future discussions with Colleen and World Influencers. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.